Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus podcast. I'm Ira Jersey, the chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. With me today, we go off the campus to Lauren Goodwin, who is an economist and strategist at New York Life Investments. Lauren, thanks very much for coming on the Fick Focus podcast. It is absolutely my pleasure. Good CPI morning to you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we're recording this on the 10th day of February 2022, where we received the highest CPI print since 1982, February 1982, to to, to be very precise. Um, so, Lauren, from from a multi asset perspective, since that's really where you you know you work and live, you know what does the high inflation prints mean for sector rotation? Like like where can investors you know think to outperform um, you know in a broad sense? Like does everyone just go to cash and start to make money when the Fed hikes, or are there other investments that you think uh, make sense here for investors? Oh my gosh, what doesn't you know the highest inflation print in many investors' lifetimes mean for rotation? It's a it's a it's a big deal. Um, no, uh, we 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 shouldn't all move to cash. Although we do expect a fair bit of volatility. I mean, inflation when it comes down to it is it you know equals financial tightening and or financial conditions tightening, and that's you know, really important for rotation. But from our perspective, this is still a market environment where investors can. Um, can be successful, but it's more in the you know the the stock picking, the bond picking, looking you know specifically at earnings, which securities and companies are able to pass through higher prices, that type of thing. Um, and it's also about that frequent um, leadership rotation. And so um, we're being in our portfolios very tactical. Um, for one, and then still leaning pretty heavily into cyclicals. And, you know, as inflation starts to peak, financial conditions tighten um, and earnings start to slow, then we'll be thinking more defensively. But for now, this is still sort of a, a hot, interesting economy to be investing in. So when we look at things like the core CPI print, right, which is, uh, you know, significantly less volatile, you know, typically than uh, headline CPI with energy and food prices going up, uh, you know, a, a large portion of a core CPI ends up being uh, earnings or, or I should say prices in for, for goods and services being passed along to the consumer. Um, you know, how long can that happen? So you mentioned financial conditions a couple of times, but but in, in your thinking about, you know, when those financial conditions roll over and when we might see some some additional volatility is there a point where um where companies have to stop raising prices because they they get the pushback right is this a typical you know we're, we're both economists right like when when you get your typical move up the uh up up, up in price you obviously move uh down the demand curve typically and it, you know at what point do you think that there's kind of a i don't want to say a buyer strike but but where does that really affect real growth rates i suppose because real growth hasn't completely rolled over here yet and i think that's one of the things that you know the fed has going for it right is that is that you have high inflation but also real growth rates continue to be positive you don't have um uh significantly slowing real wages quite yet you know but the, but that that might be coming and is that something that concerns you 
Yeah, you know, there there is a circumstance in which companies can keep raising prices for longer. I was going to say forever, but that's definitely not true. Um, uh, that that cir- circumstance is one that looks a little bit more like a traditional uh, wage uh, price spiral. Um, and and it, it's a very scary circumstance, which I think, fortunately for the U.S. economy, we're, we're very unlikely to see. But I just want to pay lip service to the fact that, you know, you can actually have prices move up for longer, um, even if customers don't like it, you know. Um, I, I don't think that's the circumstance that we have here. In fact, I think we're three to six months away from companies having had sort of their shot to raise prices. I actually, I got a uh, very thoughtful question from uh, a client yesterday uh, asking, um, you know, is this, are, are these price increases even real or are companies just seizing the opportunity of sort of higher aggregate inflation figures to sneak in the price increases um, that that they, you know, maybe haven't had a chance to do over the past 10, 15 years when uh, it was very, very difficult to do? And the answer is, yeah, of course, companies are doing that. Um, you know, they're, they're using the, this opportunity to um, pass on higher costs and to take advantage of the environment. Um, but in a normal economic cycle, and, you know, this this cycle is abnormal in so many ways, but I think in this in this case, we probably fit the typical mold where companies get one or two shots. And I think we're uh, three, like six months on the outside of companies being able to maintain their earnings in the face of these price pressures. Now, if things work out the way I more or less expect them to, which is that we will see inflation peak in that same three to six month time period, uh, then you can still have a, um, you know, a relatively benign environment where demand is pretty good, prices are starting to, to, ebb. So even though companies can't raise prices anymore, um, that that those profit margins are okay. They're probably going to be shrinking, but they're not necessarily going to be uh, contracting. Yeah, I guess I guess the question is, like, is margins, even if margins, you know, contract a little bit, right, that then it becomes a top line story. So, So to your point earlier is, you know, you want to pick companies that might do reasonably well in an environment where prices are going up, right? So, so there, you know, you mentioned you mentioned cyclicals versus defensives, and and you know where you want to be there. When in thinking about uh, you know, allocations, either by currency, like you want to be long or short the dollar in this environment with the scenario just laid out, uh, number one and number two, um, you know, what, where do you want to be in fixed income? I mean, obviously, we, we've noted that this year might be the first time in the history of the Bloomberg Aggregate Index that the, uh, that, the that the Treasury uh, Index is down two straight years. Uh, that's never happened in the 50-year history of the index. So, um, you know, is uh, you know, you don't want to be in fixed income. Maybe in general, but is is there you know a pocket in fixed income that you think might be an attractive uh, an attractive buy or could become an attractive buy in the not too distant future? Yeah, you know, the, the, yes. Um, w- one of the main things that we know, at least from historical experience, is that in periods like this of both, you know, rising short rates and a flattening curve, um, core bonds tend to struggle, especially relative to um, other fixed income asset classes. And so broadening a fixed income portfolio for most investors is going to make a lot of sense just in general. So when I say broader, I mean thinking, um, you know, into convertible, short duration securities, high yield, bank loans, you know, things outside of the core universe uh, can provide a a little bit of resilience against against some of these rate moves just in general terms. But if you want to think about, you know, which areas of fixed income 
um, are you know particularly attractive. It really comes down to um, again this 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 Fed story. So right now. Um, the market currently expects the Fed to have to raise rates relatively quickly back to neutral. That is an environment where we should expect a flat yield curve and sort of a lower for longer rate environment, which is, um, you know, lower for longer, <laughs> higher than they are. Oh, so 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 you brought up you brought up the dr- you just brought up the dreaded R star argument, like you know that the Fed has to hike the neutral. You know the, the neutral rate is a is a moving target. So how how do you define neutral in your thinking? Um, you know, is there a market measure, or um, you know, is it the you know fifty basis point R star for the Taylor rule that you know someone like Richard Clarida might have been using in the not too distant past, or or there is there another measure like like where do you see neutral? I guess for Fed funds is is the question. Well, I'll first just say that in a, in a, I'll, I'll answer the. Um, where do we like in fixed income? And we do really like floating rate securities because of that flattening curve story. But when it comes to um, neutral and, and your the specific nature of your question, um, all of the above are relevant, right? Because um, b- because the policymakers are the ones setting the policy. But really, we look at um, market pricing and the um, you know the Fed's expectation of uh, of a neutral nominal rate is around two and a half percent. The market says it's probably about seventy five basis points lower than that, and that's um, you know in the 2017 2018 hiking cycle, that market expectation is what mattered, right? Because as we got closer to in that case two percent. Um, the Fed really struggled to um, even signal additional tightening without uh, seeing a, a measurable uh, tightening in financial conditions. And so I have to um, I have to give the market credence in terms of um, what then we would see as market outcomes as the Fed gets closer to that rate. Yeah. So so right now, I mean, just so people kind of can timestamp this, it's 10 a.m. in the morning uh, of of the 10th of February, and the uh, two year one year uh, overnight index swap rate right now. So the the two year forward um, one year where the market expects the the basically the the Fed funds rate to be at the end of the hiking cycle in two years is two uh, percent right now. It's exactly two percent. So you're talking about um, you know pricing between seven and eight hikes uh, so, somewhere in that range right now, which um, you know, is, is obviously would be a lower um, kind of a lower high. Right. So in that trend of of that we've had for 40 years in terms of, of lower interest rates, whether it's in the front end or or long term securities, that would still be, you know, well within that that uh, downtrend. Um, so, so I guess one of the questions and, and I guess what are the risks that you see, um, you know, to your um you know, to your outlook. Obviously, we we have we are now pricing for you know seven or eight rate hikes, and and um, you know it, there were some people who keep on telling me, and I just want to see your opinion of this. The question that I get is, look, if the Fed hikes even three or four times, the economy is so fragile, there's no way that real growth holds up, and that the Fed's going to have to stop basically right after it starts. Um, do, do you do you think that that's a real possibility, or, um, or or do you think that the economy is on strong enough footing that you know the Fed hiking uh, you know five or six times matters? And and I'll just tell you quickly my view on it. My view on it is. I think pacing matters, right? The fact that we're we're pricing for seven or eight hikes is not a surprise to me. In fact, I've I've been saying that they probably will have to hike that that much too. But the the issue is pacing, right? If they go six times or seven times this year, I think that's an environment where they make the policy mistake by tightening too quickly, um, because base effects alone are going to have have some effect on on year on year inflation numbers. Um, 
so, so, so the question is, you know, do, do you think that the Fed makes that policy error and kind of listens to the, to the the fear in the market instead of being more reasonable and maybe hiking the five times or four times that we were pricing in the not too distant future, allowing them maybe to hike another four times next year? Well, if the pandemic um, experience has taught me anything in terms of um, investing generally. I'm going to channel my inner Kevin Garnett and say anything is possible. Um, but I, I effectively uh, agree with you not to make for uh, boring podcasting, but pacing matters a lot here. Um, I think I think that, the, you know, my basic case expectation is for four hikes this year. And that's because of exactly what you, what you've outlined. You know, the Fed might have to move a little short and sharp out of the gate, you know, a, a couple of 25 basis point hikes back to back. Um, but the, the Fed has a few things on its side, including that we already expect the economy to be slowing from, you know, what were record paces of growth. And so this sort of um, built in sort of mid cycle slowdown is, is going to be happening anyway. And, and I and I imagine that they hope that they can use that to be more uh, predictable and slow and pronounced um, in their hiking cycle. I think risks are to the hawkish side, which is what we're seeing priced in the market right now. But given how much tightening is already priced in, I'd actually expect some temporary reversal of um, the, the the flattening and the hawkishness um, that we're seeing over um, in, in moments over the next couple of quarters. And how do you think about quantitative tightening in this environment? So my my supposition has been that quantitative tightening initially might not tighten financial conditions very much because of the fact that the reverse repo facility has $1.7 trillion, just suggesting that there's a lot of excess liquidity available to the financial sector. So, so you won't necessarily see the efficacy of hikes early on, which might be one of the reasons why they hike more potentially. Um, although I'm in your camp where, where I think four or five hikes is probably much more realistic than than say seven, right? Going at every meeting, um, and at some point, at some point, they're going to announce uh, quantitative tightening, and and I suspect that they do that at a meeting early on when when they're not hiking, right? So so I think it makes sense. Like J.P. Morgan came out and suggested that they might hike March and and May, and then in June announce QT. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to that view. I think it would be cute for them to actually go March and then skip May and, and then go June. Um, but but given these numbers, I, I can see the, the reason why they would go a couple times in a row here. Um, but but so the, so the general question is, how do you put quantitative tightening in the runoff of the balance sheet kind of in your equation for, you know, what what asset rotation, you know, what what assets you think will will do better over the uh, intermediate term? You know, um, when it comes to quantitative tightening it's it's really um it's a wild card um in the sense that you know we and the fed and everybody else don't have as strong of an understanding of how incremental changes in the balance sheet and what we're talking about um isn't even particularly incremental right we're talking about a, a pretty major rollback in the size of the fed's balance sheet um you know e each each chunk of uh reduction there we don't have a great sense of how it translates into um, in inflation outcomes or growth outcomes or even liquidity outcomes. And so I, like you, expect that at the beginning, especially because the way that the Fed is 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 describing balance sheet control at this time is relatively benign um, relative to some of the expectations or fears of what it would look like, um, not to see a whole lot of, um, of trouble, especially because we're still, even with a couple of, of 25 basis point hikes underneath us, so close to the lower bound financial conditions are still going to 
to be um, relatively easy, especially in real economic terms. Um, as we move, um, as we start to uh, see some uncertainty, both in terms of, you know, maybe caps on certain types of securities not being able to be met because they, you know, there aren't the same amount of maturities. People will start to talk about, you know, will the Fed be selling as opposed to just uh, rolling off securities? There, I expect there to be some non-linear impacts to volatility in particular. Um, and, you know, at least for right now, the only thing we can really do about that is be very agile and, and watch. You mentioned the repo markets. I think that's a, um, a, a great place to start. Um, but one of the first areas where we expect this to hit is in um, credit markets, especially in high yield. And then um, as financial conditions are tightening, um, we'll be looking closely at um, the, the housing markets as, as well, which are both directly and indirectly impacted by um, these the, both measures of financial tightening that are going to be moving forward. So you brought up housing. I mean, are, are things like, uh, you know, when we think about the cyclical sectors that might get hit, something like home builders and, and you know, those types of sectors. Um, you know, we, we keep on talking about how part of the issue right now is that there seems to be a lack of supply in, in the housing market. And certainly that seems to be permeating when we look at owner's equivalent rent and the CPI numbers are starting to, you know, move a little bit higher. And they tend to be more sustained than some other components, what, what I call the higher volatility sectors within within CPI. Um, so, you know, are you, you know, how do you, how do you think about, you know, housing and then and then obviously the investments, the REITs and the and the other um, and the other financial products that can be invested in vis-a-vis uh, -vis the housing market? Well, first, when it comes to sort of the story around rents, um, there is, you know, I hesitate to ever use the word limit, but there is a certain limit on just the practical nature um, by which you know, these CPI numbers are for urban areas. So there, there, there is a, a limit to how much rents can go up in a period of time before people just stop moving, right? You know, they just decide that they're going to make different decisions. And that's one of the reasons why I do expect um, some of the just exceptional action in, in housing that's been taking place over the past couple of years to start to slow. You know, when you have uh, rising mortgage rates and tightening financial conditions and rents that have gone up a lot, people will just make different decisions. And that, that's not necessarily a good thing, right? It's just a, a reality of the housing market. Now, when it comes to investing or, or considering that as an investable trend, you have, um, you know, sort of two things working at once. You have the rents and the income component of things for um, investors. Uh, you also have the, um, and, and you have, in uh, sort of incumbent in that, you have, um, the improvement in um, in in prices uh, from the asset class level. You also have uh, rising rates, and so inflation for housing or just for real estate generally is sort of a double-edged sword. If if you have cap rates going up, that can be. Um, less constructive for valuation, certainly, but you also have um, demand for these asset classes going up because of their um, historic inflation resili inflation resiliency. Um, and so um, when it comes to real estate equity and um, some of the more liquid parts of the market, we're, we're, we're actually fairly constructive because of that inflation story. Um, but we expect um, the, the degree to which um, prices are able to rise to, to, to cool somewhat. I'll give one tiny caveat, which is that a really interesting thing that we're seeing in sort of the private investing side of real estate is that demand for, um, you know, high tech capability buildings and energy efficient buildings is uh, resulting in huge um, price um, increase ability for on the commercial side um, because tenants want those spaces. They want to be able to, you know, bridge people in from all over the world into their conference rooms and make this sort of virtual um, hybrid environment work. 
Um, same same goes for the energy efficiency piece. It's just a, a, a tenant preference that's allowing for, for much larger income increases in those segments. Great. Well, that was Lauren Goodwin. She was an economist and or is, I should say, an economist and strategist at New York Life Investments. Lauren, thanks very much for coming on the FIC Focus podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. So, so nice to spend time with you all today. And uh, we'll hope to have you back in the not too distant future. But uh, until then, we're going to now go to our fun Fed fact segment with Angelo Monolatos. Angelo, we had a repricing of the Fed expectations. I mentioned uh, to Lauren not so long ago that um, that we were now pricing for about a 2% terminal rate up from around 1.6% uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, wh- wh- what do you see in Fed pricing right now? Hey, Aaron, thanks for having me on. So at 10.14 a.m. New York time, you know, April Fed funds, which is really that play on the March March meeting, is trading at 99.54. So a fully priced print for that March 50 basis point hike that's been, you know, all over headlines and talked about by Fed officials is uh, 99.42. So we're more than 50%, theoretically, more than 50% price for actually a 50 basis point move. Um, and through July, the market is fully priced for four interest rate uh, increases through the July meeting. And uh, looking at year end, the market's now priced for six hikes in calendar year 2022 and uh, the January 2023 Fed funds, which is that kind of year end play on a 2022 year end, has sold off uh, 16 basis points today. So post you know post those CPI numbers. Um, so yeah, we've seen quite 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 large moves, especially in this current calendar year um expectations yeah. and and obviously along with that has come a pretty significant flattening of the yield curve seven basis points today in the twos tens curve and um another four basis points in fives tens um I, you know the, the the idea that the curve was not going to flatten you know you, you made a comment in one of our client chats our, our multi-strategy uh chat today that you know reminding us that jay powell thought that 75 basis points was kind of a normal twos tens curve um we're now at 50 basis points on, on that particular measure um, you know, where, you know, where are we pricing now for a terminal rate? So you mentioned that we're talking about, um, you know, seven ish, six or seven hikes by the January of next year. But, uh, you know, like I mentioned to Lauren, there's a lot of people who think that if the Fed goes that quickly, they're not going to be able to go much more. Um, so, you, you know, where are we priced now for kind of a terminal rate and when could we get there? Is it, is it January and we're done? You know that would be seven-ish hikes, right? Which is is when I noted uh, that the overnight index swap market was currently pricing. Yeah, so it looks like we're going to get there in early 2023, according to current market pricing. Um, getting getting there close to eight, not quite eight interest rate increases um, through there through you know the if you look at euro dollars, it's kind of that uh, the M3 contract, so that June contract. So yeah, basically fully priced in. Uh, by the summer of 2023. Um, But I think the really interesting disconnect is inflation expectations as expressed through CPI swaps and, like you said, the market implied uh, terminal rate. So looking four years ahead, that one-year inflation swap expectation is still 2.4%, which some market participants think that that's, that's, well, the market thinks that's fair. And then you have some participants who think that it could even be higher. So we could end up getting into a uh, equilibrium or normal inflation uh, situation that's higher than that. But as you said, and as we see in the market, the uh, market isn't quite even priced for eight total increases. So um, either the Fed's going to hike too fast, that's going to hurt the real economy, they're going to stop uh, while inflation is still uh, printing higher, um, or potentially this the 
the R stars of the, the neutral real rate that you guys spoke about earlier is just negative um, for for those scenarios to play out. Yeah, and that's something that actually we've been we've been playing with uh, building our own uh, own version of a Taylor rule using market inputs and and suggesting that you know maybe uh, maybe uh, real rates are going to remain negative for some period of time. Like even if it's only negative fifty basis points, like you said, if the, if the Fed hikes to say two percent Fed funds, which is what it's priced for right now, and um, and and inflation remains at two and a half percent, that would still imply you know a negative real yield um, in terms of uh, in terms of front end tips. Now for the long Longer term uh, tips market that they could that could become positive, right? There, there's no doubt that you can wind up with a tips curve that steepens quite significantly uh, in an environment where inflation's high now and coming down. Um, and uh, you know, I would remind everyone as well. Um, that you know, tips on a mark-to-market basis can do very, very poorly in an environment where the Fed is hiking, and I think also will underperform pretty significantly as the Federal Reserve starts to trim its balance sheet. Um, that that's just a recipe for real yields to to move significantly higher. They've already moved higher by about 70 basis points already this year, uh, 60 odd basis points this year, but they could move even even higher than that with 10-year real yields potentially reaching zero um, by year end, uh, which would be um, uh, you know quite a quite a significant negative return for um, uh, for the, the Bloomberg Tips Index. With that, Angelo, thank you very much for coming back on the FIC Focus podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Ira. And with that, thank you very much for listening. If you have an idea for a guest or topic you'd like us to hit, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. I'm Ira Jersey on behalf of Lauren Goodwin, as well as Angelo Monolatos. Be well. Be well.